Hello and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast. Today we are continuing our coverage of Rebels as we talk about Rebels Season 4, Episodes 1 and 2, Heroes of Mandalore. Uh, this ties into a lot of what we've seen on the TV show The Mandalorian. It ties into a lot of stuff that we're going to see probably in the TV show Ahsoka. We're going to talk a little bit about some casting news from the TV show Ahsoka because it ties in very much to the events of this episode. All of that and more with myself and Riki Hayashi right after this commercial break. Welcome back. So glad to have you all. Um, I am, as I said, Matthew Fox, your host. I'm joined by Riki Hashi. Riki, we're season four of Rebels. We're closing in on the end. Konbanwa. Yes. To no one's surprise, this is my favorite episode of Rebels. <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I think it is a very good episode, and yeah. I like it a lot. And what I will say about it is... If you were a fan of The Mandalorian Season 3, the arc with Bo-Katan Kryze, mm-hmm. I, I think this episode handles her story and her like character better than that show did. So, Interesting. Interesting. I, we'll get into I, that a little. I would not have gone in that direction. I'll say, by the way, that we're going to... You know, you know what? We'll probably be spoiling Mandalorian Season 3, so if you haven't seen that, you might want to hit pause and get caught up there. Um, but... Um, it's been out long enough that I feel comfortable for us talking. We won't go into tons of details, but we'll talk about the broad strokes for sure. I, I have a somewhat different view. For me, I don't see them as better or worse. What I see is I feel like I enjoyed Mandalorian even more because I knew this backstory. But now, having seen Mandalorian and going back and watching this episode again, I'm like, I'm all the more into this episode. And it's, you know, a lot of times when you have various media and various different forms telling different parts of a story, it's hard for them all to line up or you go back and you're like, oh, this doesn't quite feel right given what's happened in the show. Since then, I didn't get that. I got the exact opposite. I was like, I, it really feels to me like the writers of Mandalorian season three, this was one of the episodes they watched, they understood, and they built off of really well. Well, you say built off of the way that I feel about season three of the Mandalorian is that they leaned on this episode and like these arcs in Rebels and the Clone Wars too much to mm. fill in the gaps of characterization for Bo-Katan. Like, I think a complaint that a lot of people who only watch The Mandalorian have is they kind of don't get it. And Interesting. then okay. being, being told by people like us, like, oh, but if you watch The Clone Wars, oh, if you watch Rebels, and they're like, but I don't really want to. I don't have the time. Yeah. And... As a standalone product, I think The Mandalorian Season 3 doesn't work as well. Whereas, th- that's why I say better, is that like this is yeah. a good self-contained story for the character Bo-Katan. And that's fair. And I'll say here, you know, no one person speaks for a whole group. One of my co-hosts for those episodes about Mandalorian was Ashley Coffin, who is someone who doesn't like animation, and she had just been watching the show. And... She said she loved it and definitely did not feel like she had been kind of left behind or, or was missing things. But I, I totally believe you that there's some people who felt differently. And so, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, let me give a quick episode summary for those people who either haven't seen these episodes or have or a while ago and wanted to get caught up. So let me read this through quickly. Again, it's a two-parter. Satine, Kanan, and Ezra lead Clan Wren, which is Sabine Wren's clan, in a raid on Clan Saxon outpost to rescue Sabine's father, who's being held captive by Clan Saxon on behalf of the Empire. So to give you a quick backup, this is the Clan Saxon was the one that had, uh, uh, one of the Saxons had had come with our heroes, but the rest of Clan Saxon is now working directly with the Empire. They're still ruling on Mandalore. The outpost turns out to be a trap to capture Sabine, but they're rescued by Lady Bo-Katan of Clan Kryz. As Bo-Katan should have become ruler of Mandalore after her sister, Duchess Satine, was murdered, Sabine attempts to give her the Darksaber, but Bo-Katan refuses to accept it. Sabine's father is moved to the capital city for a public execution, so Sabine plans to rescue him as he's being transported. They attack the convoy and rescue her father, Alric Wren, who turns out to be as much of an artist as Sabine. And is, uh, you know, in that kind of like, well, I'm proud of you, but you could be doing fairly a lot better. Very critical of Sabine's art. <laughs> Sabine is, that's my editorial comment. 
Yeah. Sabine is contacted by her mother just as the Empire reveals a new weapon, the sound of which Sabine recognizes. They rush to the site of the attack and find every Mandalorian war- warrior vaporized. Sabine is devastated. Every Mandalorian warrior who was in this battle. Sabine is devastated as she realized that they were killed by a weapon she personally designed for the Empire, but is relieved to find her mother and brother have survived the attack. As more Imperials arrive, Sabine and her allies are rescued by Clan Kreese, while Bo-Katan and Ezra destroy the pursuing TIE fighters. Saxon shows a recording of the weapons field test to Thrawn. The weapon superheats an alloy in Mandalorian armor, killing the occupant but leaving stormtroopers unharmed. At Bo-Katan's camp, her men confront Sabine for her role in the creation of the weapon, which she named the Duchess after Bo-Katan's sister, Satine. Sabine convinces Clan Kreese to join her in a raid on Saxon's Star Destroyer to destroy the weapon. During the assault, Sabine is incapacitated by Saxon, who orders her to adjust the weapon to its full power. She does so, but she instead recalibrates the weapon to target Imperial armor, which stuns the Imperial troops, notably not kills them, stuns them. Sabine slashes the weapon with the Darksaber, breaching its power core and destroying the Star Destroyer. At the Kree's camp, Sabine gives Bo-Katan the Darksaber, making her the true leader of Mandalore. I will say, I think one thing that the episode uh, left out is there was some discussion of, instead of just using this weapon one time, should they actually fully redesign the weapon to be used on Imperials, either to stun them or to flat-out kill them the way the original weapon did. And there, there's a couple of moments where different characters consider that, but by the end, Sabine is like, no, we shouldn't do that, and destroys the weapon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which... Let's jump right into probably a controversial take. Oh. Unheard of on this show. I know. I know. (laughs) I think that war is terrible and war is hell, and I want to avoid war as much as possible. Yes. I think there are certain rules that if you're going to be fighting a war should be followed, such as like not targeting civilians and collateral damage and things like that. But I think the idea of honorable warfare... And, like, you have to fight fair and to often be kind of dumb. And hmm. if your goal is that a whole bunch of these soldiers are trying to kill you and you have a weapon that will kill them or even you can set it to a setting to just stun all of them, I don't know why they had to destroy the weapon. Like, I do know why, because that's not the kind of, that's not the heroic thing to do. That's the thing that, like, you know, Nick Fury and Captain America always have to talk their superiors out of doing so they can do the brave heroic thing. Hmm. But am I totally crazy for thinking that maybe, like, that's not the worst weapon to have around? Um, well, I I think it's a horrible weapon because... Agreed. It literally vaporizes the humans inside the armor, right? Like, there's no... They just become ash. um, Right. And somewhat reminiscent of the atomic bombs in that regard. But also, I I guess, like, a a more... uh, I can't remember what it's called, but a a different nuclear weapon, you know, that um, just kills people but leaves property intact. Yeah. Neutron bomb, I think. Yep, that's what it right. is, right? So the the armor actually like is in, is still intact, but the people right. inside have become ash, like in the at the end of this battle. So I I think there's a line of like kind of horrifying ways of killing people, and mm-hmm. in our own society we we consider like nuclear weapons to be one of those things, and they have not been used since World War II for I, that reason. I think there's two things though. One is that. To me, at least, one of the major problems with nuclear weapons, as was very much uh, a case when they used them, is they don't discriminate between military and civilian targets. They just mm-hmm. do horrific damage to everyone. And then, of course, with radiation and the like, do horrific damage for decades to come. This is a weapon specifically designed only to target military who are in those specific uniforms. And in terms of it being horrific, I guess that's kind of my point, is I don't I think war should be horrific. Not that I like want horrible war, but that I kind of think the idea that war could be clean or not horrific. Like to me, anything where people are trying to kill each other is by definition horrific. And 
and th this might be my side thing and no one else is going to agree with me and that's totally fine. We don't have to spend all episode on it. But I, I it, you know, to me, it's the same way. Like I respect the movie Logan more than Captain America because it shows that violence, even when it's for a very good cause, is horrific and bloody and never looks cool. You know, and I just kind of think in the same way, like if a weapon is if we're I'll give a weird analogy, but I think this is similar. Um, there are people who I, I obviously have very complicated ethical feelings about the eating of meat. And there's a part of me that feels like I, I was part of butchering an animal that was being used for meat by a friend of mine who raised goats for meat. And I remember telling myself that if I'm too grossed out by this, if I'm not able to witness this, I have to stop eating meat. Hmm. From a perspective of like, this is there is some horribleness to this act that I'm engaging in, and I have to be able to fully bear witness to that if I'm going to take part in it, and I shouldn't be hiding myself from that. And I guess I kind of feel in the same way with war, like... The idea that a weapon shouldn't be used because it kind of offends our sensibilities or it doesn't – and I, I'm not putting those words in your mouth by any means, but I guess it's that that's where I struggle with like why if – if the weapon does what you're trying to do and even if it has the stun setting too, why, why does it being horrific matter? I guess my commentary on that would be that you have to consider um... – the emotional well-being of your own troops in mm -hmm. that regard who are going to use this weapon and how they feel about it yep. and how they feel about watching their opponents mm -hmm. um, die in this way. And right. then if your opponents get a hold of a similar weapon, like they might use it on you. So I, I do think that there is kind of a tit for tat going on of like right. both sides agree not to use two horrific weapons both for the consideration of the emotional health, you know, of your soldiers who have to use them and right. in, in the cases where a similar weapon might be used against you. I think after World War One, a lot of uh, like mustard gases and those types of weapons were outlawed right, by international yeah. treaty because of because of those reasons. Yeah. No. And, and that makes sense. The the fear that the enemy would use it against you, I think, is the, is the most compelling argument there. But I also understand what you mean about the psychological health and, and all that. And I, I did, like, when you were talking about, like, well, why didn't Sabine just, like, turn turn it up to 11, right, on the Star Destroyer? Because the Star Destroyer ends up blowing up, so presumably <laughs> most of those Imperials who were stunned might have just died in that explosion anyway. Yeah, I, I realized as it got read later, I was like, so she saved all... No, actually, she killed all of them when they blew up yeah. the Star Destroyer. But 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 that's unseen, and that may be for the sensibilities of us, the audience. Yeah, that's very true, too. That's very true, too. So, uh, putting aside my own weird ethics about warfare, uh, and by the way, I will say I've never served in the military. I, I That's a world I'm not part of, so if you want to say, well, you're speaking as a totally amateur on the subject, absolutely, I 100% own that. Um, but let's talk about Sabine, because these episodes are very much about her and learning more of her background and, and her growth. What what do you think of what we get of her? And actually, to start with, what do you think of us learning that, that she actually made this weapon? Uh, terrifying, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Her explanation of it is basically that she was young and made a mistake and like saw it saw it as a technical challenge to design mm -hmm. this and did not really consider the ramifications. And I think yeah. that kind of parallels, like as like, that we discussed, like atomic weaponry. Like a lot of the scientists who are working on that saw it as a scientific challenge. And right. in fact, when they saw what had become of what they designed, I can't remember the exact quote, but one of one of them is like, "There's a historic quote of them, like uh, I have become death or something yeah. like that." It, it's from Oppenheimer, so you'll probably yeah. hear it in the new movie. It's, yeah, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, which I, I think he is quoting a Hindu text when he mm. says that. Um, but yeah, but I think Sabine is basically the same. Like, oh, I was just looking at it as like a fun design project. And then like mm. when I realized yeah. what they're going to do with it, I shut it down. Yeah. Have you, you haven't seen Shira, have you, the newer one? I have not, no. In it, there's a character. It's one of my favorite shows. I think it is so good. Lots of people should watch it. In it, there's a character named Entrapta who is portrayed as, I think, one of the best descript, one of the best portrayals of not immoral, but amoral, in terms of like she is, 
she is, she's, I think, very artistically coded, and I think a lot of people relate to her, myself included, and she very much is able to go to that place of, I am so fascinated by this, can I do this thing, that I never actually ask, what could people do with this thing I'm making, and should I do this thing because of that? And mm. the show does a really interesting job of showing that, like, yes, it's bad that she's not asking that question, and she should ask that question. In her case, it's in part because no one's ever taught her to ask that question, and once people do, she changes, to be sure. But that that is fundamentally, like, that people want to lump her in with the person who's saying, mwahaha, I want this weapon so I can conquer everybody, and that the two are fundamentally distinct. And, and I, I really thought of that as I was watching Sabine here, that she's not megalomaniacal. She's not she's never power hungry. It, it's that, as you said, though, I think it's, it's, she's young and she's just thinking in terms of I think she is pretty angry at her family and angry at Mandalorians in general. And that's a little part of it. But a lot of it is just as you said, it's just a problem. And. You know, to me, it, it goes back to that line from Jurassic Park. The I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, you know. They asked, could they do a thing? They never asked, should they do a thing? And that, to me, is exactly what Sabine is. Good old Jeff Goldblum. Yep. What else did you think about, what, what, like, getting to see more of her family and her background and, and where she goes? Well, yeah. I mean, previously, we got we got the mother and the brother and now we get to meet her father so we get the whole family i i thought it was interesting that the father is an artist Mm -hmm. and that's that's where she gets that from although they have a fun conversation where he says that no no it comes it comes from her mother too like she's very creative about how she blows things up or something like that yeah just fun fun interplay like i really loved so much of the dialogue Mm -hmm. in this episode not just with the Wrens, but with a lot of the characters. It was, yeah. I thought it was well written. I really thought it was. And I thought um, you again get to see some more of Thrawn doing his Thrawn things when he oh my is. Gosh. Someone else describes just the weapon as being, you know, doing damage. And he just sees the artistic beauty of it. But what he's <laughs> yeah. talking about is the whole idea, because he really understands, like, mental and psychological warfare, because he understands that how much and again here the things he say just informs so much of how i understand the tv show mandalorian because it shows how right he is he understands that mandalorian armor is a fundamental part of their culture in terms of it, it it's like the cultural security blanket it's the we know we are safe and secure because mm-hmm. we have this armor because we have beskar not even lightsabers can attack us and so when then along comes um you know this weapon that not only can penetrate Beskar armor, but it's specifically designed to to destroy people in Beskar armor. I, I, Thrawnch has this great line, and it just... It, I love it for him as a villain, and I don't think you can want... Like, this is one of those episodes where it's like, you really think he's an anti-hero? You really think he's just misunderstood? Like, he is intentionally looking for the weapon to psychologically destroy his enemy. <laughs> and he's right. He's right about yeah. it, too. Because... When they discuss the weapon, Ezra says, well, can you all just make your armor out of some other material? And Ulrich says, no, this armor, he says, this armor is part of our identity. It makes us who we are. Like, so they are literally willing to die in this armor rather than consider using anything else. And I thought the fact that it was Ulrich who said that was so vital because... He doesn't wear the armor himself. he, He doesn't. And one of the themes that's been played up is that Sabine's artistry is what takes her away from being like the perfect Mandalorian warrior Mm -hmm. and that she's always been in this tension of that she's somewhat she is a Mandalorian in many ways but that her art is this other thing and so the father who is clearly much more of an artist than a warrior I think kind of overly critical of his daughter but that's a a different story um, you know is the one to say it felt very very intentional Yeah, Thrawn, like Thrawn is only in one scene and it has like three or four lines of dialogue and still just amazing. Yeah, he just takes takes it over, really kind of defines what's happening in a really powerful way. Hmm. I want to talk about Sabine and her family because they do a couple of things that I really appreciate. And the first is that neither the mother nor the brother is killed by the weapon. And... 
the reason I say I appreciate that is because I think a lot of the time in a story like this, the trope often is that not only do you kill a whole bunch of people, but that your actions cause someone you were close to to die. And so now there's this sense of like, okay, well, hopefully you're bothered by the fact that all these people you didn't know were destroyed by the thing you did, but you have a personal connection to one of the victims. And the fact that she didn't, that all the people Sabine knew and loved lived, it was a whole bunch of Mandalorians whose names she may well not have known, it was their deaths that were haunting her. That, to me, made it a lot more powerful. And it felt like there was this... Tr and maybe it's just because that trope has happened so often that I'm kind of allergic to it. I really appreciated that they didn't, they didn't go there. But they did kind of. Because technically, mm. this is a two-part episode. Right? There's right. part one and part two. And the cliffhanger of part one is that the weapon is used. And we are meant to think that uh, Sabine's mother and brother are dead. And right. she... You know, kind of like doesn't know, like on top of one of the bodies or where, mm -hmm. the, where the body was. I don't think she actually shouts. But there's an amazing overhead shot that kind of zooms out mm -hmm. on her and like the devastation. And the music that ends this episode was so haunting and somber. Oh, they give it to it us was for amazing. sure. Yeah. And then but like if you watch it back to back, it's like, no, they're okay. Yeah. But if, if you were watching this, like, week to week, you you would be like, oh, they're dead. Oh, no, I get that. But what I mean is that – but by the time S Sabine is talking to the two of the other characters and, and the audience is seeing all the remorse she has about the weapon, she already knows her mother and brother are safe. That's that's what I'm more going to mm. mean is that her remorse over the weapon has nothing to do with the fact that someone she was personally close to died from mm. the weapon. Gotcha, gotcha. The other family thing I liked is that I do like that her family very quickly stood up for her. Um, I think we've gotten a lot of stories about people kind of being exiled from their families for not doing the right thing. Certainly she had been like not in good cahoots with her family uh, earlier. And the fact that fairly early on her family and then even Bo-Katan comes after her, but the rest of their are able to kind of talk her down and then Bo-Katan herself stands by, stands up for her. Um, I really appreciated that as well, because I thought, A, it just showed how strong the family bond is, but also that there was some real understanding. Like, she did this horrible thing, but she was a kid. She didn't really fully understand what she was doing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and a great kind of, like, Western-y, like, guns-drawn moment where where her mom, Ursa, says, like, if you have a problem with her, you have a problem with Clan Ren or something like that, and yeah. her and... And Tristan, the brother, like, both draw their blasters on everyone. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. uh, okay. <laughs> and yeah. then everyone backs off. Yeah. So, yeah. That was a great scene. I I mean, you you talked, like, let's, let's get into Bo-Katan. Yeah, right? let's do it. Because, first off, for those of you who did enjoy The Mandalorian, yes, that is Katie Sackhoff's voice. Mm -hmm. Yep. She, she has played Bo-Katan... Since the very beginning in animation back in the Clone Wars. So fantastic bit of continuity there to yeah. get her. And and her acting, like when she gets mad at Sabine for creating this weapon, like I got chills in that mm -hmm. scene of, of her voice acting in this episode. Yeah, her voice acting and the animation, I think the facial expressions she makes are just really, really powerful. And it's... I, I know that there are there are voice actors who do not want to be or do not have the skills to be physical actors, and I want to always mm -hmm. kind of leave room for that. And and Katie Sackhoff is someone who was a physical actor first, and then did voiceover stuff, and then came back to doing live action acting. Um, and so that's Battle not Star Battlestar, so good Starbuck. Um, so I, and we'll talk. Well, I, this maybe actually be a good good way to talk about it because I I. I definitely would say that I don't think we can always have the voice actor be actually become the, the, the live action actor, but whenever it's possible, I really appreciate that they do it. And I, I think that uh, with, with Sackhoff, uh, The Last of Us has done such a good job of it um, uh, in some really good ways. Um, so yeah, so let's, let's finish up the Bo-Katan stuff, but then we can talk more about voice acting specifics, and we've got a lot to say on that. Yeah, so for those of you who have been following the Star Wars animated shows, like The Clone Wars and Rebels up till now, and then, you know, you watch The Mandalorian Season 3, they say her name, everyone. 
By, yep. by which I mean they say Satine's name and they acknowledge the familial connection. And multiple times, Bo-Katan makes reference to her sister and how important she was. Oh my goodness. Where yeah. was this? Yeah, it's, it's I think, one of the biggest lo- losses of the show. And it's, it's funny because before you were saying, like, well, they already made it a little hard to understand Rebels if you hadn't seen the earlier stuff. I think there's an argument to be made that if they brought in... Well, no, I shouldn't say that. I think their argument is that Satine would be going one step too far. I vehemently disagree with that. And I really think they could have made Sabine a part of The Mandalorian. And I I, like, I, I comprehend the reasons why they didn't and why I hope... But I hope they will do it at some point because it just is... She's such an important character. She's such an important character for Obi-Wan. She's such an important character for mm. Bo-Katan and everything happens in Mandalorian that I just I just hate that we don't get and, it not mentioned. And this is what I mean of like the complete story arc of Bo-Katan in this episode. Like the book ends of her quotes, what she says about, you know, ruling Mandalore and her sister. Like again, first off they they say her name. They say Satine. Right. And then Bo-Katan, when Sabine Wren offers her the Darksaber at the very beginning, she says, I had my chance to rule, and I failed. I am not my sister. I am not the one you seek. And then at the end of the episode, when she accepts the Darksaber, she says, I accept the sword for my sister. And and that's just like, for, for those of you who have watched The Clone Wars and know this family, like... That means so much, and I think it, it, it is such a great moment for Bo-Katan that we just didn't get in The Mandalorian. Like, she references that her sister used to rule Mandalore, and that was basically it. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, the fact that we got some stuff about her father was what rubbed it in more. It's like, we didn't need to hear about him. Tell us about the sister, because we know yeah. who she is. Um, <clears throat> and it is interesting because, like... <sighs> My only thought watching this was that, well, this this arc looks kind of similar to what Bo-Katan goes through in Mandalorian Season 3. Right. And, and I, I do think some of it is a repeat, and part of that's because it's a good arc, and you, it, in some ways it's a redo because some people haven't seen it. it. It doesn't feel wrong to me, but it does... Like you said, I think there's always going to be a tension between those of us who want the thing... That is, here's the media for the person who has watched every single thing that's ever been on, and here's the thing for the people who are okay just watching the live action stuff, and or haven't read the books or whatever it is. And I will acknowledge, I think Star Wars has a very difficult job finding that balance. I think it has, for the most part, done a much better job than the MCU has, for example, in terms of integrating its TV shows and its movies and things like that. But I do think that yeah, as as we talk about it more, I understand what you mean. Of, I I think the integration of this storyline and the storyline of Mandalorian, there are ways that it could have been done better. But I still think that it made enough references to this and and works as a sequel to this while also kind of retelling the story of it in ways that are still so much better than I've seen that balance done in most other mediums. That I that I'm okay with it. Yeah, I mean. If you're listening to this podcast, we we are the people who want the glup shitto. Like that that yep. tweet or whatever it was was made for us. Yep. But I I still like I'm amazed that they don't say her name in the live action yeah. shows because of how much she means to these characters. And yeah, yeah it's it it makes it more complicated for people. But Bo-Katan's story of becoming ruler of Mandalore, her history is so deeply tied to her sister, and that's why she does it. Yeah. Right? Like, she she betrayed her sister in the Clone Wars. She sided yeah. with uh, Pre Vizsla and Death Watch, and they overthrew Satine's government. And mm-hmm. then Maul, look, this is all like Clone War stuff. Maul kills uh, Pre Vizsla, and then that's when, that's when Bogotan goes and frees Satine, and they and then they become on the same side. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, it's so important to this character. I I just it puzzles me. It puzzles me to no end. Yeah, I I understood why they didn't bring it up in Kenobi, mm-hmm. but I do not understand why they didn't bring it up more yeah. in Mandalorian with her. 
And I think what you said there is unfortunately part of it, that she has strong connections to Bo-Katan. She also has strong connections to Obi-Wan in a very different way. And I know they've been very careful about that, and I, I think that's unfortunately part of why it is. I hope they can figure a way to deal with it some way. Who knows? Uh, just let, let's let's now, though, get... Uh, the last thing I want to talk about from this episode is, is Vizsla and the Empire, but let's talk about voice actors. Uh, so we said sure, Katie yeah. Sackhoff being as great. Uh, you had some stuff about voice actors you wanted to dive into. Yeah, so... We know that Sabine Wren is going to appear in live action in the Ahsoka show. And mm -hmm. um, so on this, on Rebels, she is voiced by Tia Sirkar, who you may be familiar with in live action shows. Um, she was on The Good Place as one right. of like, the, the demon characters. And she is uh, an American actress of Indian descent. And then the actress that they got, they cast for Sabine Wren in live action is Natasha Liu Bordizo, who is Australian of uh, Chinese and Italian descent. So right. East East Asian. And, and she looks it. So, mm -hmm. so there's this like interesting question of what what race is Sabine, right? Like in terms of our real world, like the people right. portraying her. Because like Mandal I don't know what Mandalore Mandalorians are. Although going deeper into the cast on this show, there are perhaps some hints. Because uh, Ursa Wren, her mother, is voiced by Sharmila Devar, and then Tristan Wren, her brother, is voiced by Ritesh Rajan. Right. And those, like, as far as my research indicates, those are both American voice actors of Indian descent as well. So it right. seems like they made this intentional choice. Like, yes, this character is is somewhat coded to be Indian, even mm -hmm. though, like, you know, they don't voice them in in that in like a terrible Apu accent or anything like right. that. Yeah, I remember when her casting was first announced. This was a, a big discussion. I think you and I may have even discussed it a bit too, because sure, yeah, yeah. there are ways in which the character, the, the the way the character is drawn, both her appearance, but also I think some elements of her character. Um, that are somewhat East Asian tagged as well. And so I remember that being kind of, there, there was somewhat of a debate that I was seeing back and forth between mm -hmm. creators in both communities of, should the actress be South Asian or, or East Asian? And it's, uh, well, it, 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 it's one of those things where I'm very interested in hearing the conversation play out. I don't feel like I have a place I can take on either side. Um, but it is interesting, as you said, I hadn't even realized that her whole family, um, the voice actors are... well. As it seems, again, I don't know for sure, but it would certainly not her, Not her whole family. This is where it gets even more interesting. Her father, Ulrich Ren, is played by Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, who mm -hmm. is a Japanese actor. Mm -hmm. And if that name is familiar to you, in, in kind of nerddom circles, he was the one in the original Mortal Kombat movie who played the villain Shang Tsung. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's that's to me where I recognize him the most from. But right. he's also he's 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 been all over. He's right. all over uh, movies and I think animated shows as a voice actor. So right. when I bring stuff like this up, you know, I'm I'm Japanese and it's like, "Oh, well why why do you always have to talk about race, right?" Because I think it's important when specifically like looking at representation and like who gets to play certain roles like i think it is important because looking at the imdb entries for Kerry hiroyuki tagawa mm -hmm. you know in addition to shang Tsung, like if you go all the way back to the 80s his first role was actually in big trouble in little china which is a movie i love but he was playing just like one of the random background Chinese warriors in that. Mm -hmm. uh, he played a character named Chang in The Last Emperor. In the movie Twins with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, the character is only listed as Oriental Man. <laughs> classic, classic. And, and so many of his like 80s and 90s roles were very mixed, like Chinese names, maybe a couple mm -hmm. of Japanese names. And it's not until more recently, into the 2000s, 2010s, 
that he really starts to cement himself. Like his roles become cemented as Japanese. Because right. that's that's who he is. Um in the movie Forty Seven Ronin, for example, uh with um Keanu Reeves, I think I believe he played the villain in this as well, uh Tokugawa uh Tsunayoshi. And then like there's other Hashimoto, Yoshida, he he voice acted Hashi in the uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. Mm-hmm. So like those are his recent roles. Like those are all Japanese names. And and this is what I mean is of like representation is like when he started in the eighties, all he could get was these like very generic roles or or like Chinese mm. characters. Like oh, that's close enough. Like says says the casting right. director, right? And it, and it's just not good enough. Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear that. And I, I as I said, it, it's the kind of conversation that it's hard for me. That's what I It's the kind of conversation that for me, I'm mostly participating in as an observer because I am, as I said, like when when. I'll hear different perspectives, like when it was South Asian or East Asian for which way should Sabine go, or, or I remember um, Kim's Convenience was a favorite show of mine, and there was a lot of debate at the time because Simu Liu was one of the big stars of it, and it's mm-hmm. very specifically about a Korean family, and he himself is Chinese. Oh, uh, I didn't but, know that. But um, uh, p- uh, the person who was creating the show was himself Korean and sort of give, you know given it a Korean American, uh, Korean Canadian, I should say, and had given it some real ble- th- his blessing, but like you know. It, is that good enough, et cetera? Um, and I think that it's, I think it would be easy to say, oh my God, this is all getting so much more complicated, but I think it's a really good thing. I th- Because I think what I appreciate yes. is this whole, this, this whole wasn't to say like, okay, this casting is good, this casting is bad. It's to say, look at how far we've come. Look at that we're getting into all this more complexity. Because yeah, there are, um, you know, a, a family in which there are South Asian and East Asian people who have become a melded family, like that exists in our own world. We know Mandalorians have all sorts of different, you know, racial groupings that are part of them. Uh, Django Fett was, you know, played by someone who was Maori. We've had actors who are white and black and all sorts of different backgrounds. And and yeah, I just think it's, it's you know, in the same way, um, I, uh, Antonio Banderas is one of my favorite actors in Hollywood. I think he's incredibly sexy. And 30 years ago, when he made the movie Desperado, um, I think people who I knew who spoke Spanish, like, would comment on the fact that he was speaking with a, with a Spaniard's accent. It was not a Mexican accent in the slightest, even though he was playing a Mexican character. But for the most part, that was all the discussion that was had. Whereas today, you know, it's a movie that's very much set in Mexico about a Mexican man. There might be some comments about the fact that it's a, a Spaniard who's playing him. Um, and, and similarly, I think other things have happened like that in terms of Latin America and Asia and other things like that. Because I think there is very much a tendency of, you know, oh, well, okay, it's it's it used to be that it was Asians who should be played by Asian actors. And now it's East Asians who should be played by East Asian actors. But yes. just getting to see, get you know, even the like, you know, uh, in Ms. Marvel, I know there was some discussion about like, um, you know, it's not about just South Asians. It's Dan is very much not about Indians. It's about Pakistanis, uh, Pakistani Americans. But some of them are Indian, and and just all the layers of complexity there, and that went into the casting as well. Um, what this is now kind of going off on a tangent, but I think just another way of I, I remember this was a real discussion where I was like. I understand both sides of this, but I'm curious. I, I don't know where I would fall because I, I, I think the community is the one that should be having this discussion. During Ms. Marvel, there is a character who uh, wears a hijab in most of the world that she inhabits because she religiously believes that she wants to keep her hair covered, as many Muslim women do. Not all by any means, but many do. And And there's a scene in which that character takes off her hijab when she is with Kamal, uh, when she is with uh, Kamala, the, the ma- our main hero, mm-hmm. um, Kamala Khan. And reading about it, people talked about the, the, the debate that kind of formed was, on the one hand, people were saying, that is a really important scene for representation because, yes, m- women are allowed, at least in some of the traditions, uh, women are allowed to take off their head covering when in the presence of other women. It's that the, it's that men or strangers seeing their hair that's not acceptable. But that meant that you couldn't have a hijabi actress playing the role because oh. the actress would have to have her hair seen not only by all the cast and crew, but by everybody who's watching it. And so it was this oh, interesting, interesting moment of 
do you have an actress who is closer to the lived experience of the character or do you show more of the lived experience of the character? And I think there's merits on both sides. And I think I'm interested listening to South South Asian women uh, or Muslim women talking about this back and forth. And those two communities not being one of the same, but both having interesting perspectives. And I'm not one, I'm not going to be able to say I know which way to fall on that. But I think it's, that's a level of complexity. Like, yeah, I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of it. It sounds like you hadn't thought of either. And I'm just glad that these discussions are happening now. Yeah. And I, I think a very important level of complexity, specifically in the casting of Sabine Wren, is mm-hmm. in, in live action, is is that part, live yeah. action. Um, Natasha, the actress, has a background. I believe she has a black belt in Taekwondo and is also trained in Kempo, um, mm. sword fighting. So that is an important component that is not necessary in voice acting, right? Right to do be able to do some of her own stunts to make those scenes more authentic to not have you know the stunt doubles all the time so i think that is an important consideration for this casting and by bringing this up i'm not being critical of natasha as an actress or performer or saying like she doesn't deserve this Mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of factors in play but as you said like it's important to discuss this and consider them and for us to say, hey, like, is this the best we can do? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe it is. But in the future, we should always strive to do better. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I think that fantasy offers us the chance because, you know, I when Star Wars has tried to have particular racial groups or co- communities very closely represent as almost exact parallels specific communities on earth it's be, it's been horrible often in terms mm-hmm. of like you know the jamaican patois that was done in a very kind of parad- you know in a paradoxical but you know parody kind of a way uh by jar jar binks or the you know you've talked at great length on the show about uh the um very racist portrayal of, of the trade federation who were very clearly japanese coded um so yeah it's 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 I, I don't necessarily think that we need to have like exact, you know, one to one representation for every character to, to every race group in America or the country or the world. But but yeah, it's it's all these issues go into it in terms of voice acting, live action, writing, direct, you know, who's making these stories. And I'm just glad we're having the conversations. Yeah. And like one thing, like another thing coming up in Ahsoka is going to be um, another character who I, I like I don't know if they're going to be able to portray all of the aspects of this character correctly. So mm-hmm. I, 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 it was just something I noticed because we, I have talked about, you know, specifically Tia Sirkar and Natasha Leo Bordizo like mm-hmm. that. But I, when I dug into the cast, I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. That the rest of her family also is of Indian descent, except for her father, which yeah. I don't like, he's got a great voice. Um, I- another, if, if it's Good, yeah. another small casting thing, um, there's a captain. There's a Mandalorian captain who's like the uh, Tiber Saxon's second in command, right? And mm-hmm. I can't even. What's what's his name? It's like Captain. Oh, this is this is great. Good job, podcast. Captain Hark. He uh-huh. says his name once. Captain Hark. And to me, like I was like that. That voice sounds. Japanese, like it's kind of a Japanese accent. Uh, the the uh, voice actor is Andrew Kishino, which mm. is a Japanese last name, but he's Canadian, so he's a Canadian, maybe like second generation or something. The most interesting thing about him, well, I, I actually I don't even know. There was a lot of interesting things I discovered. He was a singer. He had a song called "I Rhyme the World in Eighty Days," which is kind of cute. Okay. Um, he played. Saw Gerrera. He was the voice actor for young Saw Gerrera in, oh, the, in Clone the Clone Wars, Wars okay. and the Bad Batch. Because yeah. old Saw Gerrera, I think when we get Saw Gerrera and Rebels, they just get Forrest Whitaker because yeah. it's closer to to that. Um, so that that's that's you know a Canadian, a Japanese Canadian playing a black man, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it continues to get more complicated in voice yeah. voice acting, and, and also. I, he okay. was married. Uh, he was married for a brief time to Vanessa Marshall, who is the voice actor who plays Hera Syndulla 
all throughout. Oh, cool. Okay. So um, there's all this the connections is, here. This is long after they married yeah. and got divorced. So, yeah. but I, I just thought it was very interesting. And I'll just say a lot. Well, two two kind of last things on this. One thing is just also remembering that like there is a history in Star Wars of <clears throat> that that I don't think we're saying, and certainly Star Wars isn't saying that the character always has to look like the voice actor. Because I think some, one of my favorite characters in all of Rebels uh, is portrayed as a, as a white man, Agent Callus, and is voiced by uh, David Oyolo, who's a black man. Um, and, you know, I think that, that that's always been a really interesting casting to me. But the other thing I just wanted to say was that, um, and I, I, as I said that, I was like, but also there's some, maybe some problematic aspects to that. So that may have been an interesting example. Go, but that's, go back to just Darth Vader, James yeah. Jones. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the other thing I was going to say, it, this is something that I, I would love it if more things took to as an example. I thought The Last of Us did a really interesting job of squaring the circle because in The Last of Us TV show, you had some characters who either the voice actor didn't look like what they wanted the character to be or the voice actor wasn't a very was either wasn't interested in being or maybe didn't have the skills to be a physical actor or the voice actor had aged a good deal because it was fairly old and could no longer like really portray that or even like because a voice act a voice actor can sound 10 or 20 years younger than they can look or older mm-hmm. um but so what they did was there was a number of voice actors from the original game who weren't voicing their original parts but were voicing much smaller parts that often had kind of interesting mentor roles to the characters they played uh, most specifically, the the person who is the voice actress of Ellie, who's kind of one of the two main protagonists of the show, plays her mother it, in live action. Plays her mother in the in the in the live action show. So, which I just thought that was and and in an interview she talked about how it was you know she having been the actress who birthed this character now yeah. getting to on screen portray birthing the the character was just oh. a really beautiful moment. So, yeah. Anyway. And- we, and that's the thing, like, if, if she wants to be on the show, I think they should offer Tia Sirkar some kind of role on yeah. Ahsoka to, to be there, to be a part of this, to have this handoff and to yeah. honor what she did with this character. I mean, one thing I've seen is that, um, oh God, I can't, what's the name of the voice actress who plays Ahsoka? Um, Ashley something? Yeah. Um, Eckstein? Eckstein, yeah. One thing that I've seen that I think is beautiful is that a lot of fan events, like at Star Wars Celebration and other cons, Ashley Eckstein and Rosario Dawson appear together and talk a lot about how they feel like to get, like Rosario Dawson is very clearly working with Ashley a lot. Because I think Ashley would be the first to say, like, she doesn't know how to do a fight scene. (laughs) She's not, you know, she's not going to do a combat scene. And then also that Rosario Dawson is really the perfect person to portray her. But then Ashley is not only like giving her blessing to that, but is working with her on Rosario's choices for the character and things like that. I just, I just love that kind of thing. Cause it's, yeah, these voice actors really do so much to create the characters. And when they come to live action, that's great, but we shouldn't leave that legacy behind. Mm -hmm. All right. We're finally going to go back to the show. Sorry for that long, uh, well, if you like this show, you probably like these uh, uh, long tangents about voice actors. I, at least I hope so. If not, let us know in the comments. Uh, if you do like it, let well. If you like it, let us know in the reviews. If you don't like it, let us know in private comments. Um, but going back to the show, the last thing I wanted to touch on is the, the 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 villains in this episode, and it's another one of the Saxons. Uh, what's his Kyber. name? Kyber Saxon. Brother. And, I thought it was son, but it's brother of Gar Saxon. Yeah. So. Kyber Saxon is to me such an interesting character and he's kind of a trope, but it's such an important one, particularly because we're seeing it happen all the time in our world right now. He's the leader of the leopards won't eat my face party. You know, if you know that that's a meme that's going around about how people will happily work for a tyrannical, awful group because they think that group will never turn on them. But then it turns out, you know, that the leopard you vote for the leopards eating my faces party. One day they're going to eat your face. And he just has all these wonderful quotes about how, you know, he has evolved and Mandalore must evolve with me. Oh, my And he gosh. is so convinced. He at one point says even, I am the Empire. And that when he said that is when I wrote down, leopards won't eat my face. Because um, he yeah, really... And he, and he says something like, Palpatine has shown me the way to power. As mm-hmm. if he's like personally talked to him, which there's no chance at all. Yeah. 
yeah, no, I think he got like one little videogram, maybe, 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 maybe a grand inqui- maybe an inquisitor came to visit him. You know, who I, knows? I think just Thrawn. I think like Thrawn has just finished contact. But yeah, yeah, he's just like Emperor Palpatine himself, like grants me this power. Yeah. And like, it's because I both want to learn these things and maybe because I'm a masochist, I am on one of those Republican email lists. And so I'm constantly getting the emails and just the number of people who just have that, like, you know, Trump has shown me the way he has changed my world. And it's exactly what's happening here. And it's just to me, he makes such a good villain because he's so he's horrifying and he's scary. And it's not even as tragic. So I don't feel bad for him. But you just know that he is, you know he is deluded and that he's wrong and that is going to end with the Empire turning on him as well. Yeah. And his, like, Captain Hark tries to tell him. He's like, yep. what, if we, if we perfect this weapon, what's going to stop the Empire from using it on us? And he's like, don't worry about it, Hark. Yeah. You fool. <clears throat> Very much so. Very Hark, much so. Hark lives, by the way. Like, at the end, yeah. he, he runs out a door and presumably escapes the Star Destroyers. I don't <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever see him again. He's a very minor character, but mm-hmm. why not? He's someone's Club Shido. He'll show up for five seconds <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. in some live action and people go <laughs> they, absolutely they crazy. They said Captain Hark. <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. Uh, uh, so right. I, got some, I got some quick cuts that go I just... Go for it. I love Kanan's quips in this episode. So good. Are like Obi-Wan level. Mm-hmm. He, he confronts Stormtroopers several times or Stormtroopers slash uh, Imperial Mandalorian warriors and the first time they say drop your weapon and kanan says i've got a better idea and then you know, <laughs> lightsabers them all and then the second time the stormtroopers this time it's imperial stormtroopers they say don't move and kanan's response is oh i'm moving <laughs> <laughs> just, and that- i love that I love that, and it pairs so well with the other running gag of these episodes, which is that poor Ezra cannot figure out how to use a Mandalorian jetpack. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's like floating. He knows his lightsaber, but he just can't figure out a jetpack. Everyone makes fun of him. It's great. Uh, and the last little cut that I want to end with was, a, I thought, one of my favorite lines of the episodes. Ooh. Especially because it really kind of it, it, it emphasizes Sabine's journey. It emphasizes Bo-Katan's journey. And it's where uh, Sabine says part of why she's giving Bo-Katan the saber is that he ha- she has, quote, the wisdom of a ruler. Mm-hmm. And remember, the whole point of the saber is normally that it has to be won in combat. Mm-hmm. And the idea being like you are the ruler because you're the best fighter, which, you know, whether it's in Wakanda or Mandalore, I think is kind of a dumb way to pick your ruler. I apologize, but it like single combat and rulership are different skill sets. And and so for Sabine to now specifically say, yeah, Sabine to specifically say, I'm you are a great warrior, but it's specifically your wisdom, which is normally not what we kind of point to. That it, it just it made the episode for me. Well, I thought you were going to say something else, so now I have to say this, which is the Go quote, the quote that Bo-Katan says that I think gets Sabine to to turn 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 away from a mm. path of destruction. Bo-Katan says, will the future of Mandalore be one of honor or cowardice? Hope or fear? The choice is yours. And I think that's the wisdom that she provided to Sabine. And it's such a beautiful line. Okay. that was not making fun that was I'm trying not to restart the debate from the beginning of the episode but to me that I literally wrote down there's nothing cowardice about using a good weapon Uh. like the whole honor of like like I love this is a total tangent but I love the TV show Firefly and my favorite moment from that show is when Mal is locked in one-on-one combat with the person who has been like his nemesis for these two episodes where they dealt with, I think it's the guy's name Crow. Uh, no, 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 it's, it's not Crow. It's someone, but it, it's someone who has been his nemesis while dealing with this, with Nisha and Niska, sorry. And, and someone starts to join in and one of his people says, no, 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 captain has to do this by himself. And the captain goes, no, I don't. And then they just, you know, and it's just like, yeah, like this idea that you have to defeat your enemy in one-on-one individual. That's dumb. If your friends are there, your friend should help. Just kill the enemy so you can win the fight and stop fighting. Um, Or stun the enemy so you can stop fighting. Either way. Uh, But I'm very glad you like that line. I think 95% of people, that line probably had exactly the effect you're talking about. And I respect that. I was just like, "Mm, that's that's dumb. That's being a bad leader. (laughs) 
but it's high, like specifically like hope and fear ties mm-hmm. into everything Star Wars. Like there were oh, several yeah. lines the the Tiber Saxon was talking about using fear, right? Mm-hmm. So it's always been that the dark side slash the Empire relies on fear as oh, a yeah. weapon. And the, the, the rebellion, the Jedi are about hope. I, I totally agree with you there. It's just the implication that some weapons are more honorable than others mm. is, is where you kind of like to me, like it, you're killing people. There's never going to be anything honorable in that. Um, it's just wrong. And if you have to do it, do it and end it as quick as possible and then don't do it again. Um, but that's my bugaboo. Listeners, tell me how wrong I am. Again, if you agree, say it. In the re- Well, don't say it in the reviews because I don't know. Say whatever the hell you want. We love reviews. We love comments. Give us whatever you want. I'd hope to do some listener feedback. We went pretty long tonight, so I apologize. Uh, this is going to be a really crazy month for me. We may miss a week or two. I really hope we're not going to, but just letting you know we're going to do that. Uh, similarly, also tonight, we are not going to have Patreon content. I apologize, but it's just been a really crazy week. But, uh, uh, Riki, for people who want to follow more what you're doing with some of the gaming you're doing and the Twitch you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah, on twitch.tv slash RikiPediago, R-I-K-I-P-E-D-I-A-G-O. I am streaming Pokemon Go, Go Battle League Battles. New season is coming up uh, Thursday, which I think is when this episode will be out. Yep. The brand new season. We got a bunch of new move updates, so I'm looking forward to using some of those Pokemon. And nice. you can also find me at the same handle on uh, Twitter. For the time nice. being, where I do still, I, I I like to talk about Star Wars on Twitter a lot. Awesome, awesome. All right, yeah, definitely check that out. And of course, this is an Ethical Panda production, so please go to theethicalpanda.com. Check out all the podcasting I do. Uh, there's this, there's superhero ethics. Uh, I'm now doing a series of episodes on the Bingers Assemble podcast, going through all the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, uh, and that we're trying to mostly be about like people who are excited for the new movie, and I definitely am. We comment a little bit on some of the archaeological ethics and how they may not have aged the best. We're going to do an entire episode just on that, though, on superhero ethics after the new movie comes out. So don't worry. That will be a, a larger topic to be discussed. So I'm having myself, Riki. Thank you all so much. Please let us know what you think. We love your feedback. We love your comments. We love your reviews. Put all those in. And most importantly, please remember, we have spoken. This is the way. If I could retcon this episode, like I would add that line at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. Uh, well, no, because, well, all right, that's a whole other topic we'll get into. And in, okay, you know what? I'm sorry, patrons. We're gonna have a Patreon section. It's gonna be five minutes, but it's oh, gonna okay. be about that. So if you want to listen to that last little part, sign up for Patreon right now. All right, welcome back, patrons. So, one of the episodes <clears throat> I am most excited for is I'm talking to a rabbi and another academic about talking specifically about the theology and the the histories of diaspora in regard to the Mandalorian mm. and how, and like in Judaism, this specifically happened very much so. And a lot of the TV show, The Mandalorian, I think is very intentionally about that. Um, but where, you know, when you have a religious group that is scattered all across the world, and this probably for cultural groups as well, their cultures will evolve separately from each other. And then when they come back together, there's some tension because they now do things different ways. And at first, I think you're totally right. But then I was like, no, but that the whole point is that the children of the watch group that is splintered off from Bo-Katan, they're the ones who come up with the, the this is the way stuff. Um, so anyway, I, I realized I had that quick little reaction that I was like, oh, let's talk about oh, this more. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I guess I can understand that. Mm-hmm. And so her Bo-Katan's adoption of it is trying to bring them into the fold and like honoring their ways and saying, hey, I'm willing to meet you halfway type of thing. Yeah, especially yeah. because she's taking her helmet off. You know, it's her way of being like, I am honoring you in many ways, but I am taking my helmet off and not yeah. completely going where you're going. I Wow. OK, I'm looking forward to your episode on that because I did like a I watched like a 20 minute YouTube video mm-hmm. on this topic because that was part of it that I am not educated on mm-hmm. at all. And especially when it came to the episode, the Mandalorian episode titled The Spies. Yeah. Right? Like a bunch of people were confused by that. And mm-hmm. it turns out that that is actually also a religious reference. 
uh, about spies that were sent out into the desert by mm-hmm. by someone in the Bible. Yeah, I think in Judges is when that takes yeah. place, but I don't remember the exact details. But yeah, it definitely was. And the, there's the, the thing that most connects it was. Uh, well, I, I've talked about it on other podcasts, but but the, there's a Passover connection that's very strong, and I'll talk about that again more on that episode to come. So, um, all right. Thank you, Ricky, so much, as always. Thank you to our patrons. I'm sorry you only got that little snippet, but you got a snippet that no one else heard, so be glad for that. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. It means the world to us, and have a good day. Mm-hmm.